let's let the children go to children's church and just reassure you parents that they will be brought back to witness the baptism. <clears throat> and you all may wish to turn to the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, where we're going to finish, beginning at the 25th verse. It's been a long while since we were in Hebrews, but we will resume there this day. That doesn't finish the book, but it's, it's coming. And let's turn to the Lord in prayer. The emphasis of our text, O Lord, is on hearing you, the God who speaks. And we gather week by week in this place to hear your word and to praise you together, led by a wonderful team of worship leaders. We acknowledge that it is possible to sing songs and pray prayers and hear messages and not hear you. So, Lord, may we hear you indeed and respond as you desire for us to do so by faith in you that our very lives in response would bring glory to your name praise to who you are for what you have done and continue to do for us guide us now in this critical passage in your word that we may hear and live we pray amen so when we were last here in the book of hebrews we considered chapter 12 verses 18 to 24 and i go back because it's been some while to bring context in that passage, God showed us two mountains in succession. First, there's Mount Sinai. That's the place, of course, where God gave his law to the Exodus generation. It was a mountain of foreboding, striking out with lightning and fire and darkness and gloom. The message of Sinai was the danger of sinful human beings drawing near to God in his holiness. Even Moses trembled at the sight. The message of the law which God gave to his people on Mount Sinai was this is what God expects, but it is beyond, it is completely and utterly beyond human capacity to perform it, to do it, because of our sin. 
Thus, the only way to please God, the only way to be right in God's sight, requires a God-provided, perfect Savior. Old Testament Israel, in large part, refused to see that truth and concluded instead that by their own obedience to that law which God gave on Mount Sinai, they would earn God's favor. They would merit God's favor. They would become right with God by doing what God said. That wasn't the message of the law, but that's the way they chose to see it. That prideful and impossible position or posture on their part would only find at Mount Sinai a mountain that could not be touched by them. They were warned not to even touch the mountain. They would find only at that mountain a blazing fire, a dark whirlwind, and the people of God, we are told in Hebrews, could only beg Relief from the very words that God gave. Beg relief from hearing God as he spoke. Beg relief from God himself, in effect. But then, we were shown in this same text, verses 18 to 24... The same scene, if you will, after Christ came to take away the storms of judgment. After the darkness was peered, pierced rather, by the light of the gospel. A second mountain, Mount Zion, takes Sinai's place. A mountain on which rests the city of the living God. And the church of his firstborn. The place where cries of fear at Mount Sinai give way to songs of joy. Jesus, the mediator of a new and superior covenant, has invited us to draw near in faith and through his shed blood, which speaks better, we are told, than the blood of Abel, through his completed work of salvation, we may draw near to God and receive eternal life. And those who believe in Jesus have done such. So on the basis of what we have seen in that whole passage, we are meant now to make some reflections about life and eternity. With the sight in our eyes, with the sounds, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion in our ears, we are now exhorted in the the remaining part of Hebrews chapter 12, picking up the text at verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Which is why I said what I said at the beginning. You can hear things, you can be present, but not really hear. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Given the glorious prospects set before us in the gospel, it would only be the gravest folly 
to see all of this, to hear all of this, and yet to turn away and refuse to listen. So I say again, see to it in your text, follow along, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Mount Sinai, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven, gospel reality with Christ. And his voice shook the earth then, fire, smoke, whirlwind. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. That is the removing of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we who have believed, who have really heard, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service. You should remember that from elsewhere in Scripture. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Putting together images in a way that we don't often see them put together. We should respond to God with gratitude, with acceptable service, with reverence, with awe. He's a consuming fire. Well, gee whiz, we're the ones who believe. This is a positive relationship. We're still reminded he is a consuming fire. So our God is a speaking God, verse 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God spoke through Moses to tell the children of Israel that he is their God. Israel belonged to God... Because he spoke to them and he declared it was so. All clear in Deuteronomy chapter 4. They were God's people, in other words. What's emphasized there, they were God's people because he told them they were his people. Thus, we are helped, I think, to understand that the gospel, which we are invited to believe, is never solely, never only, an offer to be considered by us. The gospel is also presented as an ultimatum, a command, as something that must either be received or rejected. The gospel declared, the gospel presented, always produces a response. One either hears it and believes it unto salvation, or one hears it and rejects it unto eternal judgment. Because there is no middle ground with God, with the things of God. You must either receive his word or you must reject his word. For those who reject his word, there exists no escape from judgment. In the end, one either resides 
as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or one perishes with the rest of the universe. Many people draw the mistaken conclusion about the New Testament, about Christianity so emphasized over the Old Testament and Judaism as God worked then. Many people draw the mistaken conclusion. They conclude that because Jesus, the Savior, comes, God in the flesh comes, and speaks of grace and truth, God must no longer be really all that serious about obedience. Not certainly as he was in the Old Testament, where obedience to God is emphasized, and and, and strongly so. People compare Moses, the representative, as the one who brought God's law, and Jesus... They compare them and they think, I'm not saying you do or you should, but in general, people will compare Moses and Jesus and they will come to the conclusion, they will think, Jesus is nicer. And consistent then with our wayward modern cultural attitude, they think that Jesus is more tolerant of our sin, of our religious unbelief as a society. Certainly more tolerant than was the law of God delivered through Moses. In this thinking, people are badly mistaken, blindly mistaken, willfully mistaken. According to the New Testament, the same Jesus who tenderly cares for and ministers to his flock will return in vengeance to judge the world that crucified him in unbelief. We are all guilty of that crucifixion, but those who have rejected him and disbelieved and are covered by his blood, he will return in judgment. Just because there is a new arrangement, a new covenant that's been emphasized in Hebrews, does not mean, as some have wrongly concluded, that there is now a, shall we say, change of management. God is the same God as our forefathers knew at Mount Sinai. God is... The same God who meant then and still means now to be obeyed. He is still, verse 29, a consuming fire. So there must be no Marcionite, I'll explain that, or 19th century critical, that's where it was emphasized, dismissal of the God of the Old Testament. Now, Marcion was a 2nd century A.D. heretic who preached that Jesus, Jesus was God, but he was an entirely, said Marcion, new God, a different God than the God of the Old Testament. Trinity, gone. Understanding Jesus biblically, gone. Because Marcion said, that can't be the same guy. Jesus is nicer. The God of the Old Testament's this very difficult, angry, bad God. 
modern, liberal, critical, biblical scholarship arising so strongly in the 1800s favored a view of God, did a lot of wrong things, but favored a view of God that sees God only as loving and merciful and kind and forgiving and caring, certainly not a God who is holy and just and righteous. God cannot be so divided. Jesus cannot be so divided. The Apostle Paul was properly clear about Jesus and judgment. The same Jesus who who even the world, the world by and large, recognizes the revolutionary nature of the very same Jesus who commanded love for enemies. Unheard of. Well, not unheard of. Actually, there it is even in the Old Testament. But Jesus emphasized and commanded love for enemies. That same Jesus, Paul tells us, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey his gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. God still sits in his seat as judge. Grace does not mean a universal message of forgive and forget. That applies to those who believe and to those who repent of their sin, but it does not apply universally. God is still judge. God does not, therefore, say to humanity... Well, whatever you have done, come, and everything will be okay. You're okay. God does not say, come, even if you do not repent. God does not say, everything will be okay even if you do not come. All of which things humanity, by and large, believes if they reflect upon God at all. God does not say everything will be fine even if you play at coming and then leave me again. God's grace must be received by genuine faith and submission to his lordship. He cannot be divided. Parents, most parents will certainly, I think, change the rules of the household as their children get older and as their children become more responsible. But that doesn't mean that children's respect for their parents should change. 
Indeed, respect should only increase as children mature and gain a greater understanding of the character of their parents. The same is true for spiritual children of the new covenant. And yet, many come to wrong conclusions when they compare the authority of Jesus with other authorities in the world. This, I think, is surely, if you think about it, this is surely how Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judah, felt when Jesus appeared before him and was his prisoner who was outwardly weak, helpless, it seemed, beaten, lashed, humiliated, when that Jesus, with all of that imagery present, declared nevertheless to Pilate, the governor, that he, Jesus, ruled a kingdom. You? Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate wondered sarcastically. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, verse 33 and 36. So we understand correctly, Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual one. But right there, many make a serious mistake. They think that while we had better respect and obey and fear earthly powers, earthly authorities, we can safely ignore Jesus' spiritual authority because he's nice. He isn't going to do anything to us if we do. They think somehow that Jesus' rule, being spiritual, has nothing to do, therefore, certainly nothing to do with people who don't even choose to be religious at all. Or they think they aren't. Well, now I want to I share with you a statement that James Montgomery Boyce said about these things. People who think that because Jesus has a spiritual kingdom, that's a kind of, well, you can obey it or not obey it. It's not going to make any difference. But if you don't obey the, the authorities on earth, they're going to get you. Boyce, nothing is further from the truth. For when we say that Christ's kingdom is not of this world, that's what he said, what we are really saying is that Christ's kingdom is of heaven and therefore has an even greater claim over us than do the earthly kingdoms that we know so well. Over these is Christ. This is Boyce. And we flout his kingship, not merely at the peril of our fortune and lives, which would happen if we flout the authority of human authorities, not merely at the peril of, of our fortune and lives, but at the peril of our eternal souls. The gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience, not an obedience that gets you saved, but an obedience that must follow 
for those who have believed and are saved, bringing an even greater punishment for disobedience and rejection than did the law under Moses. If humanity is condemned for neglecting the law that God shared through Moses, how much more does humanity merit condemnation for neglecting the gospel? Which, of course, was present in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that it only started in the New. But how much greater is the condemnation for those who reject the gospel? For neglecting, remember, the law, an entire generation of Israelites was forced to wander and ultimately die in the wilderness. The penalty for refusing gospel witness from heaven as it is preached, as it is read from the scriptures, is considerably greater. It is eternal condemnation. God will, now I'm, I'm weaving in more of the text, God will remove the present world and all of its idols which are shakeable. They will be crushed, they will be broken, they will be cast down. God will destroy the things of man in rebellion against God. Man's idols rebelling against God. He will destroy them, break them, cast them down. All that will remain is what is the Lord's. That which has eternal value, verses 26, 27 in our text. We must therefore not put our hope in the present world, in the things of the present world, in the money of the present world, for it will all ultimately be destroyed and remade anew. So, what we are reading, what we are hearing, if we are hearing God in our text this morning, is a prophetic history lesson, a reminder that one day, the present realm will be shaken by God, leaving only those eternal things that are of Him. The same point is made practically everywhere in the New Testament. Almost all of the writers emphasize it. John, the Apostle John, in his first epistle says, the world is passing away with all its desires. All the things that people live for. All that people strive toward that is in the world, that is of the world, will ultimately, says John, come to nothing. In contrast, John exhorts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. The one who does the will of God lives forever. All exist forever, but we wouldn't call it living quite. 1 John 2, verse 17. Peter, the apostle Peter, also writes of the judgment that will come upon the world after Christ returns. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Paul says it. Unusual for Paul, but he says it more succinctly in this case. The form of this world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. On this point, 
Christian, I should say the Christian, the biblical view is sharply at odds with the view of our world. It is hard, I think, to overestimate the importance of this. All through our lives, we are taught by the world that the things of substance, the things that matter, the things that are lasting and stable, they are worldly things. Idols, beliefs, spiritual commitments, truths of the faith. These things we are told by the world just come and go. What matters is cold, hard cash. What matters is success in business. What matters is edifices of stone and steel and brick. What matters is achievements in the world of nations, in commerce, in the arts. Believe, the world says, believe whatever you like about spiritual things, about spiritual matters, but just keep them to yourself. These are just secondary considerations says the world. Don't let them interfere with the vastly more important and lasting things of the world. And what's important is your legacy in this and about this world. This is nothing more than a tragic evil lie. that sucks many, many, many in under its influence. The world, this world, is not what ultimately matters. If it did, then our commitment and faith in Christ would not really matter. But God who shook the earth when he descended at Mount Sinai, is going to shake the heavens and the earth. He is going to shake all things when Christ comes again in glory and in power. And the day will come when everything of this world will pass away, and those who have their hopes, those who have their dreams their security, their salvation, if you will, rooted in this world. Those who have brought into this world their, their foolish philosophies, their vain thinking, they will find themselves in and through all these things brought to utter ruin. Even in the early days of the New Testament church, an enormous example of the folly of placing worldly priorities, priorities over and ahead of spiritual priorities was provided by the Roman Empire. 
When the letter to Hebrews was written, Rome's dominating power controlled the entire known world. Or it held sway in a more powerful way than anywhere else in the entire world. What was more impressive, you might ask, in that time? What was more stable? What was more lasting, it seemed, than the Roman Empire? If anyone was asked in those days, what is going to last the Roman Empire or Christianity, people would have laughed. Rome, of course. Rome will last forever. They would have pointed to Rome's pomp. pomp. They would have pointed to Rome's pageantry. They would have pointed perhaps to the Colosseum. These things, they would have said, are mere symbols of what is the eternal power and the eternal glory of Rome. Rome of time, in time rather, put all of its strength against the gospel and the followers of Jesus Christ. But in the end, it was not they, it was not God, it was not Christ, but it was Rome that capitulated. Before long, the eternal city would be overrun with barbarians, its statues crashed to the ground, its buildings looted, burned, and crumbled. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the voice that comes from heaven, has endured to this day Amen. and will endure forever. It endures because, unlike Rome, it is built on truth, not on worldly pretensions. It endures because it is truth. It endures because it is the word of God, the God who speaks and must be heard. As Isaiah said, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Exodus, uh, Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. Today, Rome's great power, which its original, which rather the original hearers, readers of the letter to the Hebrews, understandably feared, they feared Rome's great power, but today, that power is but a memory. Meanwhile, the kingdom of Christ is with us still, its strength unabated. Perhaps you have heard how the impact of the two kingdoms, Rome and Christ, has been cleverly described. I remember hearing this often, certainly when I was younger. Comparison made between Emperor Nero, who prominently persecuted Christians, and the Apostle Paul, whom Nero put to death. It was said, people named their dogs after Nero. People named their sons after Paul. The kingdom that remains, verse 28, is the kingdom of God's purchased people 
who by virtue of their union with Christ and only by virtue of their union with Christ will not be shaken. All other kingdoms will face God's judgment and they will crumble and fall. For this, we who are God's people should, we are told and instructed, respond with reverent gratitude and worship. What is it that brings us together to worship each Lord's day? What is it, I'd better say, ought to bring us together to worship each Lord's day? Gratitude to God for giving us the gospel and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything around us now may look permanent but it will all pass away and God's people and his kingdom will remain. Nothing will stop God's kingdom from triumphing over the kingdoms and the rulers of this world. His kingdom will prevail because it cannot be shaken. Amen. So we are exhorted to offer to our God acceptable service, which is what Paul told us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, we are to submit ourselves to God as living and holy sacrifices. All of life is a worship. It is a response to the God who redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. When we present our whole selves to God as living and holy sacrifices, this is our worship and it pleases him. Reverence and awe characterizes true Christian worship. We must never flippantly or haphazardly approach the one who shakes the heavens and the earth. We worship him with reverence and awe, meaning we worship him with humility and holy fear. Not a, not a, a fear that is afraid he's going to destroy us, but with a respectful, holy fear. And we never are to approach him with arrogance or carelessness. We worship him as those who know that we do not deserve his mercy and grace. We worship him with awe, for we are citizens of his unshakable kingdom. Describing God as a consuming fire, our last verse, verse 29, draws on language which Moses, of course, used to describe God at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, verse 17, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. The gospel is not merely fire insurance. The gospel is Christ's abundant mercy saving us from the holy wrath that we all rightly deserve. God's very nature rejects and is repelled by sin. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were consecrated to serve as priests but they decided that they were going to minister or they were going to, shall we say, do their business their own way. God's instructions had been very clear. Use only fire 
from the altar in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in, sorry, in the, in the temple, only fire from the altar which comes forth from the holy place. Nadab and Hab- Abihu, rather, these two sons, took fire, not from the altar as God instructed. They approached God with strange fire. Leviticus 10 reveals that fire came from the presence of God and consumed them. Not fire from the altar in this case, but what consumed them was fire from the very presence of God, from the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. When sin comes into the presence of God, it is as if the nature of God explodes in judgment. It is his nature to repel and repudiate sin. If we harbor sin, though we may cover it ever so carefully, we find ourselves confronted with the God who is a consuming fire. We cannot cleanse ourselves. Indeed, we don't really see ourselves as we actually are. Our only escape from judgment, from God's fire, is faith in Christ, who is the truth. To those who listen, hear, and follow him, the door to companionship, companionship, fellowship with God is open. Then and only then can we walk safely with this God who remains a consuming fire. The gospel invites us to draw near to God, to live upon his mountain in the city he has prepared. At the same time, God's holiness places an eternal distinction between the creature and the creator. He is never to be taken lightly, even when the threat of his wrath has been removed. By the cross of Christ, God himself is not nicer, not a tame God. He is always dangerous. Now, I have referred not all that long ago to this very thing as it is depicted in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicle series. But I share it again because while I have racked my brain these last weeks to find another fitting illustration, Lewis's illustration is so good that it bears repeating. You may remember, one of Lewis's heroines named Jill, if you haven't read a little further into Narnia, if you have, like many, only read the first book, you're like, don't know who that is. Well, one of his heroines named Jill comes upon a stream of water. She's been lost. She's dying of thirst. But she sees Aslan, the giant and majestic lion that Lewis uses to depict the Lord God himself. He's sitting there nearby. So in great fear, Jill stops in her tracks, and yet Aslan calmly invites her. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Jill's worried, though. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? 
I make no promise. Jill then wonders timidly, do you eat girls? Aslan says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jill again recoils in fear. Well, then I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, says Aslan. Oh dear, cries Jill. I'd better get about going and looking for another stream. There is no other stream, he says. If you are going to have the thirst of your soul filled by the waters of eternal life, then, my friends, you are going to have to deal with this kind of God. He will not move out of the way. He will not become more palatable. He will not be a tamer sort of God. He will never be just mild and safe. But he is the Savior, and he does love you. And he is the God not only of majesty, but of grace. He is the God who shakes the heavens and the earth, but he is the God who gives to his own an unshakable kingdom. As creatures before the Creator, we must tremble in fear as we reckon on his holiness with a godly awe that produces reverence in all of our dealings with him. And to awe we must add thanksgiving, for we are sinners redeemed by his hand of mercy, enemies reconciled by his love, rebels who are made children and heirs of his eternal kingdom. Realizing all of these things, there must be on our part gratitude from our hearts for the gifts, these gifts, his gifts that we have not deserved. These attitudes are given in God's word as yardsticks by which we may all assess the quality of our worship the quality of our obedience, of our works, the quality of our very lives offered up to him. And so we are, in the end, shall we say, offered a great choice in this life. A choice that is tested and refined after we've made it. Into the varied and discordant mixture of sounds and voices of this world into our busy lives which we think are so important into the ever-present hum of trivial human endeavors that are about us all the time God is speaking and he calls each of us at Mount Sinai, he spoke forth from the earth. In the gospel, he, 
At present, he speaks from heaven. And our choice is a simple one. Will we heed his voice? Will we receive and obey the God who breaks into our worldly affairs? It is not easy to follow the call of God in a world like ours. It is not easy to live for the world that is yet to come. The world that is invisible to our present sight. Evident only to our faith. But God, you see, did not intend it to be easy because it is the very costly devotion of our hearts that he is after. And it is always that way. We must lose our lives in order to save them. We, of course, don't save ourselves. We must give up the world to gain the kingdom of God. The prophet Jeremiah understood the relationship between the present world and the world to come. The Babylonians had laid siege to Jerusalem, establishing the camps of their vast army in the surrounding towns, which they had trampled down. God comes to Jeremiah and tells him to take his money and to make an investment. Land had come up for sale in his hometown of Anathoth, one of the villages which was currently being ground to dust by the Roman army occupying it. The real estate market, market was probably rather depressed, don't you think? But in accordance with God's word, a man came to Jeremiah and said, Buy my field. Please, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the redemption is yours. Buy it, said this man to Jeremiah, for yourself. Jeremiah 32, verse 8. The cost was 17 shekels of silver, which Jeremiah paid. He took the deed of purchase and he made provision for the land's safekeeping. This is the kind of thing that God is asking of all of us. There are plots available in the kingdom of God. They don't look very promising according to the market analysts of this world. The challenge is to invest in God's development, we have to divest from the world. The illustration is only limited in its application. We cannot serve both God and mammon. We must choose between God's city, the new Jerusalem, and the city of this world with all, all of its present attractive offerings of which there are many that look pleasant. Jeremiah paid 17 shekels, not a very large sum, but he looked for a prophet, an eternal weight of glory. God offers us an inheritance in his kingdom by faith for free. All we must do is forsake all other kingdoms and all other gods, including self. 
The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew 13, verse 44. 44. Seeing a shaking of the heavens and the earth and receiving a faith, by faith rather, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we ought to live in reverent thanksgiving. That's what the Apostle Peter advised. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people, Peter said, ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 to 13. So may our hope rest on Jesus Christ, whose coming will be soon, who is worthy of all that we can give, and who is more than able to preserve all that we place into his hands. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, may these who have heard respond by faith and so live, we pray, in Christ. Amen. Good morning. The kids are going to be making their way in. Severances, did you guys want to come up to the front so you can get a little bit better view? We'll kick John out of his chair and let you guys come up there if you want to. You don't have to, but just thought I'd offer it. Oh, sure they have. Yeah, you can just stay right there for the time being. So what we're going to do right now is, uh, new. we haven't done one of these in a Sunday morning service, um, so kind of fun. We get to work around the logistics of the whole thing. We are, after the baptism, we're going to actually sing a song of celebration, and then John will give us the benediction, and we will depart at that point in time. But I wanted to say a few remarks about baptism and about Oliver in particular. Um, the ordinance of baptism is the responsibility of the church. There's two ordinances that we administer. And one is the Lord's Supper. We do that routinely every month. We come together and we have the Lord's Supper together. And in that ordinance, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we partake in that um, in ceremony by taking the emblems of communion. The other ordinance is the ordinance of baptism. And we, we don't get to view this one or administer this one as often as we do the, the, the communion or Lord's Supper one. So we're excited for an opportunity to do that whenever we can. It's a wonderful time for the body to be encouraged by witnessing what's going on during the baptism. So we administer this ordinance. We baptize people for two reasons. One, because we want to obey Jesus. Jesus in his great commission 
commanded us to baptize. He said, go into all the nations, make disciples, and take those disciples and baptize them, is what he said to do. So we want to honor Jesus and obey him and baptize those who have made a commitment to Jesus. The second reason we do it is we also want to model Jesus. Jesus himself was baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, it says this, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I know when I was baptized personally, uh, years ago when I was 16 years old, this verse of Jesus was one of the things that really convinced me, this is important for me to do. If Jesus did it, I want to do it. If Jesus thought it was important in terms of fulfilling all righteousness, I want to do the same. So this is one of the reasons we baptize. And generally we do baptisms at the beginning of a person's walk with Christ because the, the Bible presents baptism as an initiatory rite into the kingdom of God, into salvation. Not that baptism itself saves us, but it's something that happens when we do put our faith in Christ because it's a stake in the ground. It's a place where in our own history, in our own life, where we can put a stake in the ground, put a memorial in our, in our calendar that says, this is the day that I proclaimed in front of everybody at my church that I trust Christ and He is my Lord. So baptism also symbolizes three things. Baptism, it kind of looks like a coffin up here, doesn't it? A little bit. It's almost like a little funeral service. Uh, Because that's one of the things it's supposed to symbolize. Baptism symbolizes the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when a believer submits to being baptized, what they do is they act that out. It's a, a, a choreographed play that displays what Jesus did and that they want to identify with what Jesus did. That his death, that his burial, that his resurrection changes everything for us. The second thing that baptism symbolizes is a bath. It kind of looks like a bathtub too, like a coffin bathtub. It's kind of a weird thing. But um, it symbolizes the washing that occurs when we put our faith in Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he washes us clean of all of our sin. Isn't that amazing? And the third thing that baptism symbolizes is our future. If you put your faith in Christ, this life is not all you have to live. You have a future, a very bright one. Someday your body's going to die, but your spirit never will. And someday that old body that died is going to be recreated and it's going to come back up out of that grave. It's going to be the glorious resurrection. And that's part of what he acts out today too when he gets baptized. So, you know, I'm very privileged to get the chance to to baptize you, Oliver, because uh, you and I have had a lot of conversations about all this stuff over the past few years. And... um, We've gone back and forth. I know Oliver's testimony is very impactful, and he has told me that he would love the opportunity to share that testimony with anybody who wants to hear it in more depth. 
uh, in a one-on-one conversation. He would rather not share it openly in front of everybody here because there's a lot of personal things that uh, he doesn't necessarily want divulged completely publicly, as there are with all of us when we come to Christ. But Oliver has wrestled mightily with the truths of God's Word and weighed heavily, is what I'm being taught here, is what this Word says, is it true? One is one of the things that he's wrestled with. And two, do I believe this? Do I really believe that this is true? And three, if I believe it, will I submit to it? Will I agree to follow this Jesus who invites me, who's calling me? Will I agree to obey this word? Back on October 21st, the day we started our men's retreat, that morning I got a text from Oliver, and I hope you don't mind, I didn't mention this to you, but I'm going to share what you texted, okay? So, Oliver sent me this text. It said, this morning my eyes were finally opened. I feel like a new person. And I had a great conversation with my mom. There was a switch that flipped in my head, and I completely understand. I can confidently say I put my trust in God and that He is the creator of all things. Thank you for planting seeds in my heart and always being there for me and looking out for me. I'm looking to get baptized in the near future. So this is as near as we could be from October. But, so I'm very excited and privileged to get a chance to do this. So if, that, if you want to go and step up in there, I have no idea how slippery it's going to be. Is it cold? I tried to get it warm, but you know, John preached, you know, and it got cold. So that, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, you can sit there. Go ahead and sit there. And you might want to yeah. <laughs> might want to scoot forward just a little quite a bit actually, because you might bang your head on the step there. You're good right there. So Oliver, I want to ask you two questions, and if you agree to them, just say I do. Okay? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all and that his death and burial and resurrection has saved you from and brought forgiveness for all of your sin? I do. Oliver, do you promise that from this day forward, to the very best of your ability and by the help of God's Spirit empowering you, that you will obey and follow him all the days of your life? I do. All right. All right, go ahead and put your hands up. Pinch your nose. All right. Then, Oliver, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.